Have you ever noticed how we take historical figures, especially heroes, people that we look up to, and we sort of make them our own, right? We do that in Illinois with Abraham Lincoln. He's everywhere, right? And he was elected president from this state. He was a senator from this state. But Kentuckians would remind us that he was not born here, right? He was born in Kentucky. And Hoosiers would remind us that his formative childhood years were spent in their state. Everybody wants a piece of Lincoln. And, and that's true for historical figures in our country, but it's even more so it's true of Jesus. We always take Jesus and we want to make Jesus a lot like ourselves. We want to lay claim to him. And it's amazing how Jesus agrees with me on so many things, right? Jesus' politics are a lot like my politics. Jesus looks a lot like me according to a lot of the art we see. We take Jesus and we make him our own. And to illustrate that, I want to show you some depictions of Jesus. Some of them go way back in history and how we take Jesus and recreate him sometimes in our own image. Let's look at the first one. This one goes way back. It's one of the earliest sort of depictions of Jesus we have. It's an ancient painting and it's in southern Europe and it's amazing how Jesus looks like a southern European and a lot of the people of his day. We go to the next one, and this comes from the church called the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, what was Constantinople, a, a famous cathedral where this is, and it's a picture of Jesus that takes us a little bit different direction, right? We've got the halo and the cross, and Jesus looks much like the people of that day. We go one step further, and what we find is Jesus in the Middle Ages. Jesus as king, they thought of Jesus because king was so important to them. They thought of Jesus as king of the universe. And so here's Jesus with not just one crown, but two crowns holding a scepter. This is a royal Jesus because that's how they understood Jesus. We move to the Renaissance. We have Michelangelo sort of depicting Jesus as the perfect human form. That was important in his day. The heroes had a perfect human form, so we got this manly, muscular Jesus. We go another step. This one's still in the Renaissance, but this is Rembrandt. And it's a very different picture of Jesus, isn't it? We go from muscular Jesus, manly Jesus, to this picture of Jesus where to me you see the compassion, the kindness, the love of Jesus in such a clear way. Maybe one or the other of those two speaks to you in a more powerful way because of how you see Jesus. Think about these pictures of Jesus. We have this one that comes from Africa, where Jesus becomes more like an African teacher. And this is the Lord's table. We go to the next one, and Jesus is Asian. And the last two, we might say, well, those are not historically accurate. Jesus didn't look like that, no. But, but art is not always meant to be historically accurate, is it? Sometimes it's there to tell us something about the subject that's being painted. Sometimes it's there to tell us something about the artist who created it. And then there's this last one that I, I don't know what you do with that one, but it's there, right? I mean, I'm sure it says something important about Jesus. We take Jesus and we make him our own. We recreate him in our image. But the question is, is it really like the Jesus of Scripture? Do we take Jesus and, and change Him so much and make Him so much of what we want Him to be or so much like us that He doesn't resemble the Jesus who actually lived and died and rose on the third day? The, the Jesus that God sent. And so today I want us to think about that 
And think about the Jesus that really was in Scripture, and, and one short story that points us in some important directions. Now, today we come to Mark chapter 8. We're in the series that we're calling Christianity Explored. We're thinking about the Gospel of Mark, and, and we're really looking at this story maybe in a new way. And if you haven't picked up one of these booklets, there's several more in the foyer, and People keep asking me, can I take one for my husband, my kids? Yes, okay, we've got plenty. There are more where these came from. Take as many as you want. Share them with people. It's just, it's really just the gospel of Mark. We'd love for you to take more than, than you've taken so far. And read through that, mark it up, highlight it, draw in it, write in it, whatever helps you focus in on the story. As we come to Mark chapter 8, what we find is that we're, we're right in the middle of the gospel of Mark. Almost right there, if you took Mark and divided it into two pieces, we're right there, right in the middle. And it's not just the, the heart of, of the story spatially, but, but the heart of the story. Okay, This is right at what really matters to Mark. What we find ourselves is Jesus with his disciples, and he's asking some key questions that help us understand who he is. So here we are, Mark chapter... Eight, and if I can get on the right page, it'll help. There we go. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. We'll come back to that fact in a minute. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What, what are they saying about me? As you hear people talking, who do, they, who do they think I am? And the disciples begin to answer that question. And someone says, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Well, that seems a little strange because John the Baptist is, is dead, right? I mean, J Mark records that story. We see that elsewhere, that he's beheaded, as a matter of fact. So how could Jesus be John the Baptist? Well, people think that John's sort of been raised to life again. He's been raised from the dead. And, and the, that makes a little sense because the message of John is pretty similar to the message of Jesus. They talk about repentance and baptism. Faith is there. Changing your life, it's all there. But... But we know John really is dead. And John said over and over, I'm not the Messiah. I'm preparing the way for the one coming after me. Jesus says, well, who else? Uh, other people say you're, you're Elijah, Jesus. Well, again, Elijah's dead. How does that make sense? But if we look back to the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, we hear Malachi saying that before the Messiah comes, there will be one to prepare the way. It's going to be Elijah coming back. Well, Jesus has already said that John the Baptist was Elijah coming back. Not literally, but sort of in the same mold as Elijah, coming to prepare the way for him. Others say Jesus is a, Jesus is a prophet. Now, the Old Testament prophets had come to an end, and many people in ancient Palestine believed that there were no prophets, at least not in the same way as we see from Isaiah and Jeremiah, some of the other prophets. So when they say, Jesus, you're a prophet, it's not like an insult. It's not like saying something bad about Jesus. In fact, it's lifting him up, but, but that's not the clear picture either. And then Jesus turns it on his disciples, and he asks them this question. And he asks them in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's probably the most important question that's asked in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a question for the disciples who surrounded Jesus. You've been here, right? You've seen it all. You've heard everything I've said, all that I've taught, how I've interacted with people, the miracles I perform, evil spirits cast out. After seeing all that, who do you say that I am? 
But that question's not just for them, is it? It's for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a question we need to think about. Who do I believe Jesus really was? Peter's the one to answer the question. Nobody contradicts him. Nobody challenges this. So it seems to me that most of the apostles, the disciples, believe that. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Christ, that's the Greek word, Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. They mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. Who do you anoint? The king. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, he's saying, you are the king. The king. Now that had been prophesied. That was exciting. People wanted a new king. People wanted a king in the line of David. They wanted a king to come and and change everything for them. They were waiting on God to act. It had been promised. And now people began to see that, that God was acting. Now this is really powerful stuff. And it really mattered. And, and there's a couple of things about Peter saying this at this point that to me really just strike me in this story. Number one, the word Christ. Okay, He says, you are the Christ. What's interesting, and maybe you've noticed this if you've been reading through Mark and maybe in one setting it'd be easier to notice it. The word Christ, this is the, only the second time that that word appears in the Gospel of Mark. The first time and the only time up to this point that it's appeared is Chapter 1, verse 1. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark's not used that word since then. No one has uttered that word in the story of Jesus up to this moment in Acts chapter 8, verse 29. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 29. I don't think that's an accident. I think what Mark is doing is he has been telling us the story. And he's told us at the beginning, I'm going to tell you the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And he said, this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said. These are the signs that he performed, the miracles he did, the demons he cast out, all this stuff. And he's leading us along this path and saying, okay, what are you learning about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And then Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? What have you learned? What opinion have you formed about Jesus up to this point in the story? And Peter says, you're the king. Now, back to the location. Caesarea Philippi. The disciples and Jesus never go to Caesarea Philippi on another occasion. It's the furthest north that they go in Jesus' entire ministry. If we begin in the south, in Judea, Jerusalem, that's all in the southern part of what we call Israel. You move north, you come through Galilee where Jesus' ministry is focused. Nazareth, Capernaum, all those little cities that Jesus visited. You keep going north out of the land where most of the Jews lived in the ancient world in Palestine to an area that's controlled by Gentiles to a city that was built by Herod's son, Philip, called Caesarea Philippi. Now, why did he build the city? He took a little town and he rebuilt it, renamed it, rededicated it. And what did he name it? Caesarea. Caesar town. It's named after the emperor. It's named for the emperor. And that city's focus was on the worship of Caesar, the emperor as the king and the son of god a god himself so where does jesus where does jesus take his disciples to ask 
the question, who am I? To Caesarville, the town devoted to Caesar himself, to the worship of Caesar. And so when Peter says, you are the king, what is in everyone's mind when they're in Caesarea Philippi is, Caesar's not the king. Jesus is the king. Caesar thinks he's the most powerful man who has ever lived and he thinks that he is the son of God and when he dies he is going to become a God so everyone should bow down and worship him. And this says, no, it's not true. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son of God. Everything else, everything that they've heard about Caesar is a lie. Now, Peter's got this right. Jesus is the king. But then Jesus begins to describe what kind of king he's going to be, and it all gets a little more difficult. Verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, a word, a phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now that's not the king that anybody expected. People expected a, a political king, a king that was going to come in and, and take over and get rid of Rome and all the things that everyone disliked and he was going to be a great leader and, and then Jesus says, I'm going to come in and suffer. And the very people who should welcome the Messiah, the chief priests, the scribes, all the religious leaders, the religious professionals of the day should have known that he was the king and instead they're going to have him killed. That's not the kind of king that they wanted. That's not the kind of king anybody wanted. That's not even a king, is it? King's about power and prestige and the exercise of authority, not suffering and arrest and trial and death. Peter doesn't like that message. Verse 32, Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine rebuking Jesus. I can imagine Peter saying, listen, Jesus, we don't want to hear this. You've got to change your message. This is not good for morale. We need you to build us up. We need to go back into Galilee and then down to Judea. And, and we need to be pumped up and ready for action. We need to be ready to crown you as king. Come on, Jesus, let's, let's get going. We don't want to hear this. And what's Jesus' response? But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get away from me. You're like Satan, the accuser, the, the tempter. You're trying to pull me away from what God has called me to do. God has called me to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and be arrested and go on trial and die on a cross. And you don't want me to do it. If that's who you're going to be, just, just get away. Just go. I don't want any part of that. You see, Jesus wasn't the king that Peter wanted in that moment. 
It wasn't the king that Peter had envisioned. He wasn't maybe even the, the king that Peter thought he was following. But he was the king we needed. They didn't think of a king taking a crown of thorns. They didn't think of a king taking on a robe that was really meant to ridicule him. They didn't think of a king being lifted up and honored on a cross. Because a cross was about humiliation and death. But that's the king we needed. And that's the message for us from this passage. Jesus is the king we needed. We needed a king who could take our sin. We needed a king who could take the shame of death. We needed a king who could rise again. And that's the king that Jesus was and is. And you know, sometimes we're a lot like these men that surrounded Jesus on that day. We have our preconceived notions. In fact, we've got notions that have been taught to us and, and passed on to us for hundreds of years. And, and some of them are right on and some of them are very helpful and some of them are dead wrong because they're corruptions of who Jesus is. They're what we want Jesus to be, what we're comfortable with, what affirms what we already believe. And what most of us need is a fresh encounter with Jesus, and this series is designed to do just that, to take the message of Jesus and allow us to read through it on our own and hear what Jesus said and see what he did and then begin to understand who he was. He was the king we needed. Maybe not the king we always want. Maybe not the king we would choose, but the king God gave us. In fact, a picture of God that God has given us. There's no better image of God than Jesus. And so we need to encounter this. And we need to read through this and then answer the question, but who do you say that I am? The King. The King we needed from the beginning. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for King Jesus. We're thankful you gave us yourself. Just what we needed. God, we know that sometimes we get that whole image messed up and we corrupt the image of Jesus because of what we want him to be, because we want him to be like us, because we want him to do something for us. We, we just don't always understand. And God, we pray that you will reform our understanding of Jesus so that we too can be reformed into your image. God, make us like you through Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.